Welcome to this episode of Outspoken Oncology. My name is Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. I want to thank all of you for the support that you have provided to this podcast and for continuing to listen to this podcast. We have been on the air for over a year and a half, and I am forever grateful to your support. Today's podcast is very important and is very special. I have the honor and pleasure of hosting Dr. Pamela Coons. Dr. Pamela Coons is currently the leader and the head of the GI cancer program at the Smillow Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven and Yale Cancer Center and the director of GI medical oncology with the section of medical oncology. She joined Yale just recently, coming from Stanford University, where she has been there for many years. Dr. Kunz and I are not going to be talking about GI oncology as much as I want to, actually, and I probably will have her on a future show to discuss advances in GI oncology. But I want to talk to her about the reason she moved from Stanford to Yale. She actually did go public and talk about some of the challenges that she encountered when she was at her older institution in terms of uh, discrimination, uh, sexual harassment. And she really um, dealt with this for many years. And there were several articles in the press that talked about what she has encountered. She talked about being belittled, uh, about uh, being discriminated against um, from seeking or being allowed certain research opportunities. And in one of the articles that I have read that cited uh, Dr. Kunz, she said, it's sort of death by a thousand cuts, relentless, subtle comments that build up. This was in an article that was published in the Mercury News. And the date of the article, I believe, is sometime uh, in uh, June uh, 2020. So I really uh, wanted to invite Dr. Kunz so me and her can chat about that experience, about the challenges that she went through, about everything that has happened that led to uh, the encounter, but more importantly, uh, what lessons that she learned that we could actually tell others about uh, so we can avoid certain scenarios similar to what she has encountered. Uh, I hope you find this episode helpful, timely, educational, and uh, I'm really very grateful for the time and the opportunity that Dr. Kins provided me and the outspoken oncology. Before I air the episode that I taped with Dr. Kunz on August 5, 2020, I want to plug the show by asking you to find us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, any podcast outlet that you could possibly find. Please leave us a written review if you can. It takes you only less than 60 seconds and give us the number of stars you believe we deserve. Uh, you can always let me know what you think about the show by sending a direct message on Twitter to at Shadi Nabhan, that's at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-N, or sending me an email to shadinabhan oo at outlook.com. And without further ado, the interview with Dr. Pamela Coons only on the Outspoken Oncology Podcast. Well, it's really uh, an honor and pleasure to uh, have Dr. Pamela Coons with me on the podcast. I, I'm, I'm very grateful for the time that she is going to give us, and we're going to learn a lot from her unfortunate experience uh, somewhere, but hopefully fortunate experience moving forward. Before we get started, um, Pamela, I'll, uh, it's okay to call you Pamela? Yes, totally fine. We'll go on the record that you said it's okay. Yes. <laughs> um, 
I just want to make sure that folks know who you are. I know you just recently moved, so maybe just a little bit of a quick background into who you are and uh, what's your new role entails from a medical standpoint. Yes. So I am a GI medical oncologist, and um, I don't know how far back you want me to go, but I did my medical school training at Dartmouth. I'm originally from outside of Boston, and I'm a New Englander at heart. Yes, exactly. And um, I went to Stanford um, for residency and just stayed for almost 20 years. So I was a chief resident and then an oncology fellow and was on faculty at Stanford for about 10 years. You just moved, right? Just moved a month ago. And so I'm now at Yale University and I'm the director of the GI cancer program and leader of the GI medical oncology team. And I'm excited to see where that will lead. Um, My personal research interests are in neuroendocrine tumors, and I do primarily clinical trials research, but also some health outcomes research. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, you know, it's, it's, it's always interesting to go back when we were in training and how GI oncology was and how it transformed. The funniest thing about GI oncology for me is I recall when I was in training, when I was doing my fellowship, and I did my fellowship at Northwestern, is like the, the, the hottest thing was, is how do we give five FU? Is it bolus? Is it right. 24 hours? Is it every <laughs> week? It's like, I mean, so many papers on this and, and how it evolved over 20 years is just fascinating. Yes, we have a little bit more than five FU now. <laughs> right, right. But Pamela, I think, I, I think we've talked that I have you on the show, uh, not to talk about GI, but you promised me we're going to bring you back at some point to talk about the science because there's a lot of interesting stuff. But um, I invited you because I was uh, intrigued and when I read an article uh, about your experience um, that has happened at your older institution. And as an observer, when I was reading the article, obviously there's a human element to this when you get to know what the person has gone through. But also in my mind, I was thinking this can't be the only story. I mean, there must be maybe a lot of other similar stories and we just don't hear about them. So I thought that you were very courageous to to talk about your story and, and, and I wanted to bring you on because I want to talk about it some more bring it a little bit out in the open, uh, although it might bring some bad memories, but I do think it could help. I also want to try to hopefully get some lessons learned to listeners about this story and and maybe have a path forward into how can we really improve on things. Uh, There's always a silver lining in every disaster, every tragedy, and maybe there are some elements that we could find ways to improve on things. So maybe there are listeners who don't know what we're talking about. So let's start from the beginning into just tell us what was going on and what what led to you sharing your story with the press and the outside world. Yes. So thank you, first of all, for wanting to highlight this problem of gender and sexual harassment in medicine. It is, I think, a much bigger problem than just me. And um, I think it's worth actually going back to when I was a trainee I think that um, because I think not, you know, all, not all was bad. When I was a trainee, I felt um, very supported. I think that I had a tremendous community. I had great mentorship. And um, I don't think I really knew much about this issue of gender discrimination and harassment. And I certainly didn't feel that I was experiencing it at the time. Um, I can look back a little bit now and see some signs, but I actually, I really had a very positive training experience at Stanford. And I think that it was when I became a mid-career faculty member and that I suddenly felt, or I, I felt that I threatened other faculty, primarily older male faculty. And it was when I was um, given leadership roles or I had some success in research on a national level or podium talks at ASCO. And it was suddenly at that time when I achieved some level of success that I posed this threat. And at that point, I started experiencing what I would describe as gender discrimination and harassment. Most of it was subtle microaggressions. I did not 
personally experienced any physical harassment. I want to make that clear. This was really all verbal. And the microaggressions, just to give some specific examples, were somewhere around um, maternity leave. Oh, I have to cover another another maternity leave again, or oh, you're pregnant again. I have. I should mention I'm married and have three sons. Um, and so that was unusual. And then um, when I was when I had leadership roles, it was undermining my leadership publicly. I had one specific incident that I actually talked about in one of these articles where I was the director of um, a CME course and I had a colleague say that um, he would let me answer first so that he could correct me. Um, and this was in front of an audience of you know, 50 community oncologists. And then this just became pervasive. So it became really hard for me to succeed in an environment where I felt that at every turn my leadership was being undermined and barriers were being put up that I felt were very related to my gender. And um, I talked with a number of leadership, you know, members of the leadership about some of the challenges that I faced. And I think many women like me, I think, feel very isolated and alone. And it's actually really hard to talk about because like me, I I was, I think many women like me are made to feel like it's our fault. Somehow we bring this on. Um, we're blamed for the behavior. And, and it's frankly really hard to prove. You know, these microaggressions can be very subtle, but they can be just as damaging because they're so insidious. And um, that's, I, I think, I felt that I had an opportunity to talk about this. I think you asked, why did I speak about it. And I think because I was leaving an institution, I felt that I had less risk of retaliation. And I think a lot of women worry about talking about issues like this because of a concern for retaliation. And ultimately, I felt that it was important to be honest and bring this out in the open in hopes that it would, A, empower other women to speak up, and B, bring some awareness to this issue. So, Pamela, let's. I want to obviously dissect this just a little bit for the sake of understanding and also for listeners. Um, mm -hmm. So, going back to um, when you started feeling this way, and I'm just trying to learn because um, I think there are certain times, like how, if it's a female or a male colleague, if we take the gender out, and, and there's a comment like, you know, um, you can go first and I will correct you after. And I ask this with, with, with a lot of sincerity because I'm trying to know when do you, how can you differentiate sometimes if it's really an honest, innocent joke? Because we always joke. I mean, you know how it is in, in medicine, right? Versus a malicious intent where, you know, this really is not uh, meant well. Like, you know, I mean, um, I was on a call earlier today. Uh, it was a three-way call and uh, one person asked a question and the other person answer, uh, answered. It was three guys, by the way, so I'll, I'll have to say that. <laughs> <laughs> that me. Anyway, but, uh, and then it was my turn. So I told the person who asked, I said, okay, erase everything he said, just listen to me. But we, the three of us laughed. And I guess I'm trying just to get, I mean, we all obviously in medicine, like how, how is it, um, tell me how you differentiate that? Because we all know sometimes there are some innocent jokes. Is it because, is it the repeated behavior that it happens a lot? Is it the person, like, give us some insight into, uh, how you felt it was obviously ill intent. Well, I think that this was um, the person that said this had made many prior comments um, that were disrespectful and unprofessional. And so um, he would often make comments that created a power differential. And I think these issues around gender discrimination and harassment are really about power. And I think that medicine in particular, as you know, has this very clear hierarchy that creates power differentials. And there has been research to show that gender discrimination harassment is especially bad in medicine because these, this hierarchy and the power differentials exist. So back to the examples, I think this was someone very senior to me. So there was already an existing power differential. So I think that you know, lessons learned would be that 
men or women who are in these different levels of power, I think need to be especially sensitive to the things that they're saying. And, um, but this was repeated behavior also. Yeah, I think it's the repetition. And, and were there other female colleagues at the institution, whether they are the same level, career level, or even junior that um, kind of like, you know, you were able, they were able to relate that you talked to behind closed doors that they confided in you? Or what, did you feel there was an isolated behavior just directed to you? That is a great question. So one of the surprises from my coming, you know, being public and giving my name in, in, in these situations was that many, many women came forward, both at Stanford and outside. In fact, I'm still getting emails and direct messages on Twitter and messages via LinkedIn commenting on how my being public has helped them um, think about this issue and has helped them either come forward or think about how they want to be treated differently. Um, so I have to say that was incredibly empowering for me. I'm really, I think, glad that I came forward because it has raised a lot of really important issues. And I, but the question is, well, how is, how and is this going to make a difference? And I think that by talking about it, by publicizing it, increasing awareness, your podcast, I'm really hopeful that it, it raises awareness. And I think I ended up doing a lot of reading and educating myself about the topic. It's not something, I'm not an expert in this area. And around the time that I really acknowledged and realized that this was happening to me was when the 2018 National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine report came out on sexual harassment. And if you haven't seen that, I'd encourage you and the listeners to look at that. And it was fascinating and basically stated that um, in the sciences, engineering and medicine, medicine in particular, there were very high rates of gender harassment and sexual harassment, second only to the military. And I think that they did this very deep dive into examining um, rates of gender and sexual harassment. I think the other thing they did a very nice job of defining is this analogy of an iceberg of sexual harassment, where traditionally we think of sexual harassment as what's on the tip of the iceberg, overt sexual misconduct, physical harassment, but the large majority of the iceberg, which is under the water, are verbal put-downs, sexual innuendos, um, microaggressions that I mentioned. And I think that the many women in medicine experience this to varying degrees. And I think many of us just accept that that's just the way that it is. But I think that the more women that speak out about it and make it not okay, I'm really hoping that there will be a positive culture change. When you were at Stanford, how, I mean, how long did you think this went on, I guess? And, and was it, you know, how, how do you, like, what did you have, what did you do? Did you have to call the dean, the division chief? Like what, I mean, you know, once you feel that something is happening, what did you do to try to, to resolve this? Or did you just, you just couldn't, you didn't feel you can actually complain, I guess. So I was, um, Pretty, so it's a, a great question, and I think that women at many, in many university settings would have similar resources to what I had. And I was very transparent with leadership from, you know, including my division and department and the School of Medicine leadership and the ombuds people. And I went to who I thought would be good listeners and, and helpful. Um, but ultimately there were no, I felt that there were no concrete changes made in response to my complaints. And I think that's what was frustrating and ultimately led me to look for um, positions outside of Stanford. But did they, did they like did they question your credibility? Did they investigate? Did they say, okay, well, let's investigate or did they... Did they do anything uh, or nothing? There, there were talks about doing a climate survey, perhaps an investigation, but those things ultimately did not happen. And I think that 
there are genuinely, there are, you know, not everyone at Stanford is bad. And I want to make that clear. There are definitely some people that care about diversity and inclusion and equity and I think, and respect. And I think that there are some people that are really working hard to try to change that culture. I just felt that I had experienced enough years of that treatment. And I think I'd also stayed in tr at a place that I trained and I felt ultimately that the best decision for me personally was to have a, a change, a professional change. Um, and no place is perfect. You know, I'm really hopeful that Yale will professionally be a better work culture for me. They are not immune to having had some of their own experiences and some have been very public around gender discrimination and harassment, but I think that there's some really exciting changes happening at Yale. Um, there is a new female dean for the School of Medicine, Dr. Nancy Brown. There are a number of women in leadership roles. But um, I, you know, I know that the grass is not always greener, but I am hopeful and there have been some real positive changes here. So still, I've only been here three weeks, so <laughs> to be determined. Um, but it's been, a, I think, really empowering for me to talk about it. I've been, I was very open about this being important to me when I was looking at jobs. And I think, um, you know, this will, this passion of mine, I'm trying to direct also into doing positive, productive things, which I can certainly talk about in a little bit. Yeah, no, we will. So you, you were still promoted at Stanford though, right? I mean, you were, yes. you went to, uh, and you went to the professor level at Stanford? Associate professor Associate level. Associate professor yeah. at Stanford. Um, and then when you decide that you want to bring the story to the open, how did you do that? I mean, I guess, how did you choose the reporter? How did you choose the journal? Uh, and did you, was it easy to, to do, to, to bring out? I mean, you mentioned the fear of retaliation. I mean, I think that's obviously um, always top of mind because people could always still retaliate by discrediting the person, even, you know, I mean, they say, well, it's just a bunch of hoax and so forth. What, what went through your mind as you were thinking about this and how did you decide on the outlet to, to bring it out? So none of this was um, anything I sought out actually. So um, I'll give you the sequence of events. So there were um, a number of Title IX forums at Stanford and Title IX for everybody, Title IX offices at universities deal with issues around sexual harassment. And so the Title IX offices were having an external review and there were a number of Zoom forums and I participated in one of them because I thought it would be interesting to see what um, they had to say. And I was quoted in the Stanford Daily, which is the undergraduate newspaper, saying something along the lines of, you know, this is an issue in academic medicine. It was a very, you know, short quote. The writer of that article subsequently contacted me afterwards, Kate Selig, and she is a Stanford freshman. And she said that on that call, she recognized that there was a pattern um, that she noticed amongst School of Medicine female faculty, and she wanted to do an article on that. So that was the second article that came out at the stand for this from the Stanford Daily. And I was quoted in that. And then a number of other women um, who were anonymous were also quoted in that article um, around issues of gender and sexual harassment in medicine. And then along around that same time, I had actually that entire year prior participated in a Clayman Institute faculty fellowship at Stanford. So the Clayman Institute is a gender research institute at Stanford. And this was when I was trying to figure out how to put my frustrations into something productive. And they take about 10 faculty fellows every year to do gender-based research. And it's from all over the university. So I was in a cohort with colleagues from the Department of Music and the Art History Department, the Department of Philosophy. And it was a really tremendous community of like-minded, progressive, very open-minded faculty. And it just, it was really what I needed that year. 
and I brought in a research idea to, you know, I'm a clinical trialist at heart, and I thought, all right, let's do something where I can examine workforce diversity um, amongst oncologists. So my ongoing research project that's not complete yet is looking at the gender of PIs on phase two and three clinical trials in GI oncology, with my hypothesis being that most of the randomized phase three impactful clinical trials have men as PIs in GI onc. And so we'll see what that shows, but just in terms of my observations of who gives the podium talks at ASCO, it's mostly male presenters. And so that was, that's been really exciting to think about. I have a really awesome team that's helping me with that. They're still based at Stanford. And um, that's also led to thinking about how I can incorporate this sort of research professionally to try to help contribute to objective data to move the needle. So then an article came out, the Clayman Institute does a newsletter and they put out an article almost exactly at the same time that that second Stanford Daily article came out. And then the San Jose Mercury News, which is a local California newspaper, um, contacted me after they read the Stanford Daily article. So that's how that's how that all. That's a, that's a lot. That's a lot to digest. Very yeah. interesting. So so. So I did not seek out the publicity. Yeah, this was... but, that, but but it's interesting because. Um, when you got contacted, because in the, in the in the beginning was really internal publicity from the, yeah. the daily, but then when you got contacted by the Mercury uh, News, and I, w I was reading this article earlier today, that's now an outside outlet. Yes. Did you have as a faculty member? Did you have to go to I don't know the PR office or and get like a permission? Because I mean, obviously there are so many regulations into talking to outside folks. Uh, or was that not part of the, uh, you didn't need to do that? Well, I was no longer employed by Stanford ah, at the okay. time, but I did get advice from some Stanford colleagues who I trust. Um, the Mercury um, was very thoughtful in their approach and really let me have some say um, in what was published. And I gave them names of people to other people to speak to. And they also did their due diligence and gave Stanford an opportunity, um, including other faculty members and the Dean's office to um, give their opinion about some of the comments. So I, I thought that they um, did their due diligence in providing a balanced story. Yeah, I thought the story was pretty good. Uh, yeah. After that story came out, what was the response from Stanford? Um, so amongst my friends at Stanford, I got um, a lot of support and appreciation for, you know, speaking out. And I, um, I didn't hear, I actually have to say, I heard very little in the way of negativity, with the exception of some of the you know, online comments to the Mercury amongst people that I don't know. And I think that's to be expected. Among, I think I put it on Twitter and had an incredibly positive response amongst the academic medicine community. And I also did choose to tell, tell Yale because I had not yet started. And I felt that that was professional to just tell them that this was in the press and I wanted them to know. And I had, um, a very positive, supportive response from the Yale leadership, also thanking me for my bravery and courage, that they would help support me when I arrived, and that they hoped that I would find the culture more supportive um, than what I had experienced. Do you think that you would have come out with the story before securing an employment? That's a really good question. Um, probably not. Yeah. And I think therein lies the fear of retaliation. I mean, I still had nightmares that my Yale job would be rescinded. I mean, I'll be completely honest. Like I would wake up at night. It was very nerve wracking. I mean, I said, yes, they could use my name, but I was still worried, even though I felt that I tried to be very thoughtful in my comments and 
um, balanced and I, I put a lot of thought into what I said, but I was still worried and worried about what Stanford would think. And I think that this is why many women do not come forward with stories like this. I've since heard many, many women's stories who women who are currently at Stanford, women who left Stanford, and women at completely different institutions. So I want to be clear, this is not unique to Stanford. And I, I think that I chose to speak about it, chose to speak about it, but I think that it's pretty pervasive in academic medicine in general. I mean, it's, it's pretty tough in academic medicine in general. Culturally, I think, obviously, for a variety of reasons, but uh, you mentioned the, the issue of um, the fear of going with the story before securing an employment, because I think we all understand that, um, I can understand that fear because you know you, you just never know, right? I mean, you get the offer and they could use a different excuse. They won't say this is the excuse. They, yeah. They say you're a New England Patriots fan, we just can't get it. <laughs> but, but I mean, that's really a, a real fear and it's really a problem. But I guess my question is, do you think there, there would be um, I'm trying to think much broader. Could there be any fear from institutions to then in the future hire less women because they are afraid that of stories like this? Like how much I, I how I'm worried about the trickle down effect that they're two twofold. Number one, is it like how, how do we make sure we change the culture without having the effect of institutions are fearful of hiring a successful academic career woman because of this? You know what I'm trying to get at? I, um, I do. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it really, um, well, let, let me tell, uh, reference one past study and then I'll answer that. So during the Me Too movement, which also happened around 2017, 2018, I can't remember exactly, there were some articles pretty in pretty high profile journals like New England Medicine and JAMA that were perspective pieces. And I don't remember the exact, uh, the authors or the title and I can find it for you, but there were some comments about how during Me Too that men were fearful of mentoring women because of this concern for being labeled as acting unprofessionally or inappropriately and that they would have to watch everything they did. Um, that of course is like the wrong answer, <laughs> but, um, but I think that there was some legitimate fear of backlash. And I think that kind of gets to this question that you're asking of, well, how do we promote women but also try to shift the culture so that women are not perceived in a way that women, that strong female leaders are not perceived with all these negative connotations. And, you know, I, I think that it's really a culture shift, but it also really is embracing diversity of all sorts. This issue of treating women respectfully, I think also is timely because it also is related to treating everybody respectfully. And I think you could look at this as a respectful workplace issue. I think we all need medicine to be more diverse. And by bringing in more diverse physicians, we will provide better patient care and have more diverse um, points of view. And I mean, I think it just, it goes to that. So it's, I think if academic medical centers keep hiring like-minded people, these cultures will be pervasive, but if they hire women and underrepresented minorities and create a more diverse workforce, we are not going to have issues like this. How much do you think the issue that you experienced, um, the discrimination story, is uh, more unique to medicine and academia versus other sectors in life, finance, uh, what, banking, whatever it is? And obviously, I realize you may not be able to comment on all sectors, but do you think this is a broader issue or do you think in medicine, in academic medicine, it's just more pronounced? I think it's a broader issue, but I think, as I'd mentioned before, because medicine is so hierarchical, it, it, the power differentials already are very 
it's, there are these clear line, power lines of, you know, from even the length of white coats, right? And I think that those power differentials create and allow for bad behavior. And I think we've all been, I think medicine's gotten better, but I think that there, you know, these power differentials have created, um, often have created toxic work environments of verbal abuse to both men and women. I mean, we've all read House of God, <laughs> but I think that, you know, this has existed in the medical culture for a long time, but I think now women are especially the recipients of this. And in that National Academies report, medicine, the numbers in medicine were worse than in science and engineering, so than in other scientific fields. Are there other issues that happened before you moved to uh, Yale that uh, I think you provide some examples, any other signs or examples you want to share with listeners that um, uh, before we move into some proposed solutions or some proposed ideas into how you want to move things forward? No, I think the there were, I had some examples in the research arena where I felt that um, I was trying to establish research relationships with pharmaceutical companies or other collaborators. And again, in those settings, I felt that I had some male colleagues who felt threatened by that and then started trying to create their own relationships with these same people. So I think I did experience some retaliation in that capacity where those, some of those research opportunities were, they were trying to take those away from me. Um, you know, in, in trying to change things again, I mean, we, we have to be thoughtful how, how you, you will do that. You're, you're, you're going to be, uh, by default, you're going to be, you know, not just a GI oncologist now, you have another aspect of your research and your plan, career plan. How, how do you, like, what, what are the steps that you do? Because it's not going to change overnight. I mean, let's face it, right. it's not going to change overnight. And you have to be, like, you want to maintain uh, the level of people are not afraid. Like you said, you brought, you brought the New England Journal of Medicine article that men are afraid of mentoring women. I mean, they'd rather mentor men right now because they get afraid that they may be misunderstood. Because a lot of times comments are in the eyes of the beholder. I mean, you could, somebody could, uh, you know, you know, comment on, you know, something and you view it as a nice compliment, innocent compliment, and another person you view it differently. So as you're trying to change things and you want to be cognizant of all of this, what are the steps that you take? And, and how long do you think it will take? And do you have that outline? Do you have a plan? Do you have a team? Like, how are you trying to approach this? What, the first is, you know, I'm really excited to be a female leader of a GI oncology group. So I'm appreciative of Yale for putting me in that position. So I think other institutions can put women in leadership roles. That's not the only solution, but I think that it helps um, place women in a role where they can be seen as a respected leader. So that's important. And then it also creates opportunities for mentoring where um, I can hopefully get mentorship from other women in leadership, but then I can mentor other junior faculty to take on leadership roles. So I think that's really critical to the success of a, a shifting culture. Um, second, that I'm personally doing, as you'd mentioned, is trying to contribute to research in this area. There are a number of women doing research around disparities in the professional workforce. So Dr. Reshma Jagsi um, is doing a, num a number of these research studies. She'd be a great person for you to get on your podcast. <laughs> yeah. so, so she's a radiation oncologist and she has um, really dedicated much of her research career to examining gender disparities in oncology and in radiation oncology and is a leader in this space for sure. So I'm hoping to contribute some to that. Um, I'm also, so that would be on the academic side. I think another aspect of what we do in academic medicine is interact with industry. Um, that's a big component of funding for clinical trials. And um, I'll mention another side project that I'm involved in. I had an observation that as I was getting invited to speak on advisory boards 
or be part of a steering committee for a clinical trial, I as a policy just start asking about the composition of these panels or advisory boards and was finding that they were mostly males, other men. And um, I would make a point of either suggesting other women or if it was only men, I would point that out. Um, I think as you know, Francis Collins of the NIH said he would not be on all male panels called a mantle. And I think that some other leaders have come out and said they would not participate in all male panels also. And so um, I, I think one of the last times I got invited to be on an advisory board that was primarily men, I actually went to the leadership of that company and said, hey, I noticed this, you may not even realize this. Like sometimes these advisory boards are outsourced to a third party. And um, what's been interesting is that I now have a collection of pharmaceutical companies who are interested in trying to shift the culture and figure out, well, how do they map out who a key opinion leader is? Is it based on the same biases that, um, you know, often there are more men who are first and senior authors. There are more men who often give podium talks. So if they're based on those same things that are actually biased, then we may be giving, there may be more men who are in the key opinion leader roles. And, say, and then those KOLs get invited to be on advisory boards and steering committees. And that then self-perpetuates who's leading clinical trials. And it, it's all, um, so I'm hoping to raise, yeah, I'm hope it's a domino effect. So I'm hoping to raise awareness amongst our pharmaceutical company partners and have really, have some now very engaged partners who are interested in doing this. So that's exciting because I think that if we can then try to pull back the curtain on how some of those decisions are made internally at, at pharma, pharma companies, then we can maybe shift the needle there too. I think my concern is as somebody who has learned a lot of from uh, female faculty uh, as a fellow and um, uh, was mentored actually by several. My concern is that the, the balance, we want to make sure that the pendulum doesn't swing all the way. So I'm trying to, you know, I mean, I'm glad that you're doing it in a very thoughtful and systematic way because um, I think we have to make sure whatever we're doing is a stepwise fashion and it's, uh, it's thoughtful. It's, uh, it's also from a patient perspective is really important, right? I mean, I mean, as a, as a patient, and I know you're a patient advocate and I'm a patient advocate, we want to have the diversity and inclusion and everything. But at the end of the day, we want to make sure that the patient is cared for by the, by the most uh, uh, um, knowledgeable physician. And there are many women knowledgeable physicians that we can include, but, uh, but, but, we want to make, I want to make sure it's really as thoughtful as possible. So I'm glad you're doing it this way. And I really, um, I'm hoping that we see a lot of the work doing, you know, moving that direction. I'm actually very in, uh, intrigued by you reaching out to the pharma companies and talking to them about this. I, I'm curious, how was the reception with that? Because sometimes the... <laughs> yeah. It was very positive, I have to say. I was okay. pleasantly surprised. Yeah. That is very good. Yeah. Yeah. What, what else should we tell listeners about your experience. I mean, I, I, I mean, I think I could only imagine that you were traumatized somewhat with everything that you went through, but uh, if anything, that will always give you more resilience and, and gets you stronger on the other side. But what other elements we should tell listeners about what we went through? And um, I don't know if I'll ever give it justice what you went through. So I want to make sure that you, you give it the justice because you went through all of this. So whatever you want to tell listeners and whatever we need to cover that I missed, I want to make sure that we cover everything possible that folks who are listening understand what you went through and learn from it. Thank you. So I think um, you know, my primarily, primary goal for listeners would be to, number one, raise awareness that this is very likely a problem at their institution. Um, I have had male colleagues um, ask me sort of after the fact or make comments like, I had no idea this was happening. Um, how can I make sure this doesn't happen to women that are in my lab or women that are in my group? And I really think the first is acknowledging it and 
Um, asking the women you work with if they've had any experiences like this. Just make it okay to talk about. And I think that that's really one of the first steps. The second is creating opportunities for you know, women to, um, as I'd mentioned, take on leadership roles. And then the third would be creating opportunities to, as you said, systematically and objectively examine um, you know, some of these work, workforce disparities. So I'll mention one other thing is that ASCO has um, really tried to tackle some of this. And I had the opportunity to lead one of the ASCO tracks this year on professional development and education advances and their scientific track. And they've now, over the last few years, had many more abstracts submitted on workforce disparities. And so they're trying to actually help address this in a scientific way by creating a forum for these scientific abstracts. I'll give an example. At last year's ASCO, there was a great abstract by Dr. Narjust Duma. At the time, she was a fellow at the Mayo Clinic. She is now a thoracic and medical oncology faculty member at the University of Wisconsin. And she was on my podcast. Oh, good, good. So your listeners may know this already, but her abstract asked, or her research project asked a very simple question on the professional introductions of speakers at ASCO. And she found out that women were less likely to be introduced by their professional title, like doctor, than the male speakers. So I think that I'm really, I'm proud of ASCO for taking what other professional societies might consider a little bit of a risk to promote research like this. And um, I think that they also have, are dedicating time for educational topics around workforce disparities and diversity. And I think that um, seeing a premier professional society do that, I think hopefully will also give academic institutions permission to do very similar things. You know, I have to, um, you, you're active on social media, relatively uh, yeah. active on social media. Um, and just, just, just came to me. Did you, were you, um, you heard about the um, hashtag med bikini over yeah. two or three weeks ago? So I, I, I don't know. I mean, any, any thoughts on comments on that? Because that, I don't know, it seems like it's not obviously academic. Med, well, it is somewhat, but any comments on that? Because there are, there were two views. One view is, goodness, there are way many problems now in the world, in healthcare and so forth, that we're just worrying about this. And obviously the opposite view that this is what kind of research is this and what are you trying to do? So I think you're the perfect person, honestly, to comment on that because uh, I, I didn't really read the paper. I was just following what's going on. It seems like a big, big issue that happened over a few days before the retraction. Any thoughts on this? Do you want to comment on it? So I will also admit I did not read the full article. I did read part of it. Um, you know, and I think that my sense is that the, um, there probably should have been more thought put into the, you know, who were authors on this and the conduct of the research. And I think that ultimately their conclusions, I think, ended up being fairly biased against women. So, I mean, I don't, Again, I don't know the authors at all. I, I don't believe there was malintent, but I think that we all need to be really thoughtful about how we are portraying women and underrepresented minorities when we are doing research in this space. And I think that unfortunately, their descriptions ended up being very biased against women around sort of the social media postings. Pam, Pam this is really um, a fascinating journey that you took us through. Uh, I think you, I probably speak for a lot of people, you probably, ins you, you inspire a lot of people that um, with what you went through and frankly, the courage of going out public, I I don't know if a lot of people will have that courage, but I, I do think that highlighting an important problem is critical. Um, and sometimes it's worth the backlash, frankly, because you have a bigger, you, uh, it's okay to lose few battles if you're gonna win the war, right? I mean, that's what they say. 
Any last comments uh, that you have uh, that you want to leave us with? Well, first of all, thank you for highlighting this. I think that by doing so, you are already being a he, hashtag he for she. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I think stay tuned. We have something in the works to try to create a toolkit of how to be a he for she and with um, some male collaborators that I'm working with. So I think that that's something that I think you asked for, what are really concrete things we can do? So stay tuned. That's another project that actually Dr. Argava and Salas and I are working on together. And um, I think I just encourage your listeners to, to talk about it. I think that's one of the most important things right now. Well, good luck to you at Yale. Uh, I'm Thank you. Glad you are a New England Patriots fan, though. That is, I know my sons are diehard Boston sports fans. I'm like, uh, you know, listeners <laughs> know I'm huge. I mean, like now I have to like Tampa Bay because Tom Brady went to Tampa Bay. So That's I have, right. you know, I have to have two teams. But um, I'm a fan of the Patriots and of Tom Brady. So. But it's really good to to have you, and I, I'm going to take you on the offer. Once you settle in and the department gets going, maybe in about six months or so, we come back and talk a little bit more science, GI oncology, the molecular stuff, and all of these things. So that I'm going to hold you on to that. I'd love to. That sounds great. Now you're on record that you're going to come back. Okay. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Okay, folks, I appreciate you taking the time of your busy schedule and listening to this inspiring interview with Dr. Pamela Kunz. Uh, I have learned a lot from this. Uh, I think there are so many things that were said. Really, I'm not going to belabor the point, but hopefully you uh, found a lot of useful information uh, as well as, uh, you know, Dr. Kunz has taught us a lot from her experience. Uh, I'm very grateful uh, for that opportunity. So let us know what you think about this episode, other episodes. Direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan, that's at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N, or send me uh, an email to Shadi Nabhan OO at Outlook.com. And before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a quote from Winston Churchill. It's actually one of my favorite ones. Success consists of going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm, without loss of enthusiasm. Let us not lose the enthusiasm. Until next time. Take care.